Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for the grace that you give us, Lord. Thank you for the mercy that you provide us, Lord. Thank you that every day, Lord, your mercies are new for us. And uh, every day, Lord, we have um, your goodness to look forward to. And uh, Father, we know that our lives are filled with many trials and troubles and ailments and sickness and and hardships, Lord. And we know that you are sustaining us in the midst of this. And we know that your hand is enough to carry us through this life and on into the next. And so, Father, we pray that you would have us to rely and to um, put all of our weight and trust upon you. Uh, We love you, Lord. We know that you love us and that you care for us. And Father, we just pray that you would be glorified now in this time. Help us, give us ears to hear, and Lord, give us understanding and open up your word to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Very good. So we are um, still talking about Christology, and that's what I'm going to talk about today for Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day, by the way, everybody. I don't celebrate Halloween, so it's Reformation Day for me. Um, today we're going to be looking at a very important doctrine of Christology, and uh, this is definitely part one only, <laughs> uh, because there's a lot to talk about. So today we're talking about the atonement, the atonement, and uh, such an important doctrine uh, to talk about the atonement. And, you know, people put the atonement under the category of Christology. So if you would see my notes... It would say, Doctrine of Christ, the Atonement, uh, because the Atonement is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and really it has to do with his mediation or his role as our mediator, our intercessor, our sacrifice, and our redeemer. And uh, we'll get to the um, we'll get to the actual offices of Christ. And when I say the offices of Christ, I'm referring to what. His offices as what? Prophet, priest, and king. king. That's important. It's even relevant here because as our priest, Jesus is the one that makes a sacrifice on our behalf. And it just happens to be a sacrifice of himself, but he does make a sacrifice, and we know that he makes an atoning sacrifice. So the atonement is really... um, (laughs) As one theologian described it, it really is the heart of the gospel. We're getting to the very soul of the gospel when we're talking about the atonement because it is the atonement that puts us right with God. Um, It is through the atonement that our sins are forgiven, right? I mean, the very word atonement, the Hebrew word for that um, uh, is this Greek word here, kifor, sorry. See, I needed a, nobody helped me out with that eraser. That's okay. Um, But let me write it again a little bit more legibly. Kifur, right? Kifurim, uh, Yom HaKifurim, the Day of Atonement, uh, is really just a word that means to cover, to cover. And, uh, well, old school way. Might have to work. Yeah, we'll have to work. Yeah. Yeah, it works really good. Good job. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about how our sins are covered. I mean, that's what the atonement is all about. And so, let me just give us kind of a working definition of what the atonement is, okay? 
Let me describe, let me give us a definition, a simple working definition, and then we're going to get to two aspects, preliminary aspects about the atonement. But this is the way that I would describe the atonement. The atonement is a penal substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb of God on behalf of the sin of the world, resulting in the removal of God's wrath, the forgiveness of man's sins, and reconciliation between God and man to the praise and glory of the triune God of Scripture. Now, that last part there, to the praise and glory of the triune God of Scripture, that's just not for sentimental reasons, folks. Uh, to the praise of the triune God of Scripture because the atonement is the work of the triune God. Okay, uh, This is very important as well. If you study the doctrine of atonement and you get into the history of atonement, that what you learn is that people, people had different views of why the atonement happened. Why was it necessary? Is the atonement necessary? Or is it just one way in which God decided to deliver man? Why did the atonement take place? Is it that God the Father is an angry judge that has to be appeased and therefore in order to take care of the problems that we made for ourselves, Jesus comes in and delivers us from his angry father in the sense of that, you know, God is this mean God and he's out to get us. And Jesus comes in to deliver us from the anger of God. And, uh, and the way he does this is by sacrificing himself. Well, remember, I mean, Jesus is just as, judge as, just, as just as the Father, right? Jesus is, is also going to judge the, the living and the dead. And so this is, this is a whole, this is not the Father versus the Son here. This is not the Son being the victim on the altar of God's anger. So this is why we say, that it is a substitutionary sacrifice and that it is vicarious. It is a willful standing in your place. It is a willful substitution. God, the Son, willfully laid down his life. He was not compelled to do it. He was not coerced to do it. He did it freely of his own sovereign will. And um, therefore... It is a work of the whole triune God. So two things I want to talk about today. And number one is this. What caused, what caused the atonement? So we're asking about the, the, the appropriate cause of the atonement. And what was the reason, in other words? What was, the, what was the basis of the atonement? Why did the atonement have to happen? Mike? The fall of man. Yeah. The fall of man, the sinfulness of man. Okay. That's good. That's good. Anybody else? What is the cause? What caused the atonement to take place? What caused the atonement to be um, the way in which God was going to redeem man? Right? So theologians have asked this question because we're asking a question that comes down to the very character of God. Why God ch chose to do this, and uh, this is going to spill into our, our next point, but uh, when we're, we're talking about the cause of the atonement, we have to begin with the will of God. Let's just say the will of God, and what we mean by that is the decree of God. The decree of God, meaning the things that God purposed to happen, the things that God willed to take place, his purposes, his plans. Robert? I think Colossians 1 uh, 
19 and 20 explain um, the reason. It says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Very, very good. That's verse 19 and 20. And 20, that's right. That's actually good. That's one of the verses I have down, actually. That's right, because you hit the, the, the nail on the head, so to speak, by uh, quoting that verse because it says there that it was the Father's good pleasure, right? Or another way to translate that, the good pleasure of his will. It has that prefix on it, ooh, uh, in front of that word, which means that it's something that God purposed, but the, 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 the Greek little introductory prefix there, ooh, is, means good. So something good is coming. In this case, it is the will of God. So it was his good will, his good pleasure, his good purpose that willed to do it this way. So it's rooted in the will of God. Turn to Isaiah 53, because there you have another very similar statement. Isaiah 53, verse 10. I mean, this is, I mean, this is so critical for us to understand the atoning work of Christ rightly, properly. And so we're going to get into all the different categories of, you know, not just the, the nature of the atonement, but we're also going to talk about the extent of the atonement, right? I mean, I follow in the Reformed tradition. That, that means I have a Reformed understanding of the atonement. So this becomes very important when it boils down to the extent of the atonement, the scope of the atonement. And... Um, that's just kind of whet your appetite a little so you come back next week, okay? <clears throat> but uh, here in Isaiah 53, look at verse 10, here we have the same type of um, emphasis on the benevolent uh, will of God. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Pleased to crush him. See, if we don't understand, well, what does that mean? I mean, we could almost get this vision of God, that God is like this monster that wants to crush his son. And, and many liberals have done that. They've actually gone to the point where they say the atonement was cosmic, cosmic child abuse. And, and the father's abusing his son, his innocent poor son, right? But we know that the doctrine of substitution, again, means that Jesus willfully laid down his life. That he voluntarily substituted himself for us. Jesus says, you know, I lay my life down of my own initiative. No one takes it from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. So nobody forced Jesus to do anything. We're talking about the, really this goes back to the eternal covenant of redemption. The pact of redemption in all eternity. Where the members of the Godhead all agreed to fulfill the role of, their own particular role in uh, 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 redeeming, re redeeming mankind. Redeeming mankind. Uh, I made fun of this before, you know, but you've heard people, you know, worship leaders, and I th I've probably been guilty of this, getting up there and worshiping, you know, uh, in the midst of a, of a, you know, song or something, you know, in more charismatic churches, right? We have afterglows and, you know, and, uh, you know, we do, we do stuff like that. The church will just kind of, you know, do, you know, spontaneous, you know, type of, you know, worship. And you'll hear people pray in the midst of that sometimes and say, Father, I thank you for dying for me. Right? <laughs> and and uh, it's uncritical prayer. And it's, it's actually heretical. <laughs> you know, we know people make mistakes and we all make mistakes. And sometimes... Our prayers are heretical, <laughs> so uh, we just got to watch it. You better watch how you pray, you know. 
You can't say you can't begin your prayer and say, Father God, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you died for me. You know, because what you've just uttered is an absolute biblical impossibility. The Father did not die for you. Uh, the Son died for you. So anyway, you know, uh, we, we just have to watch our prayer P's and Q's. Uh, another one, Galatians chapter, um, uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 says there, that God gave, uh, that Christ gave himself for our sins. Uh, Galatians 1 4. This is such a powerful verse, by the way. Love this verse. <clears throat> he gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See that? So what is the cause of the atonement? What is the, the basis of it? Ultimately, it is the decree of God, the will of God, the good pleasure of God. Um, everything really comes back down to the decree, the will of God. Any questions? Comments, anything, observations so far on that point? No? You guys are too easy. Mm. Okay. Um, so where does, where does the motive to send Jesus come from in the first place? Right? Well, it comes from God's good pleasure. But this brings up a couple of different issues here. Um, when we're talking about why God did it, why did God cause the atonement? Let me ask you guys that, that question. Why did he cause the atonement? Why did he decide to do it that way? Was it to satisfy his justice? Was it to satisfy his justice? Huh? What's that? Well, what about that? I mean, right? I mean, what is the, atone what is the atonement doing? What is it accomplishing? Exactly that. And so did God want to satisfy his justice in the atonement? Absolutely, right? Did God send his son to die and to atone for the sins of his people because he loved his people? Yes or no? Yes, yes that's right. Uh, what's the verse for that? John 3.16. There you go, that's right. Where's the football banner when you need one, right? Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it is at the very bottom of God's motivation for doing this that his love and his justice would be displayed. And so his love and his justice are not at odds with one another, but they complement one another. Um, let me read to you something a great theologian by the name of Louis Burkhoff said, okay? Louis Burkhoff said, It was the love of God that provided a way of escape for lost sinners. It was the justice of God which required that this way should be of such a nature as to meet the demands of the law in order that God might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus Christ. So what verse is he quoting there? Romans 3, so turn there with me. Romans chapter 3. I guess you can see the fine balance of this in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, you see both the love of God in action, the justice of God, right? I mean, what do we hear when we do evangelism at UNT from so-called Christians, right? Or maybe they are Christians, they're the good meaning Christians. A lot of times it's so sad, people come to the microphone, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and then... I disagree with you. You're the meanest person I've ever met. Uh, 
And then they commenced the cursing and cussing and using profanity and showing themselves not to probably be Christians. But anyway, that's sad. It's a sad testimony. And what they're saying is, look, you better come, if you're going to come here and preach, you better say nothing but love, 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 and nothing but love. Uh, but the problem with that is that God himself did not save sinners basically, basically you know, uh, solely on the basis of his love, did he? He saved them also to manifest his justice and his righteousness. Look at this text, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse, oh boy, 23, so that we don't uh, stay here all day because we can. It's such a glorious, glorious passage. But he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now just kind of keep your eye on the ball. Love justice, love justice, right? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when it says that God is the justifier, what part of this does that magnify? I would say mainly his love, right? Because justifier basically is talking about what did God do for sinful man, right? By his grace, he justified man because of his great love, because of his great mercy, because of his... Only because of a sovereign grace does God even extend the hand to help a sinner out, right? And then he says that, that he would be just, that he would be just. So there we see that God is concerned for his, for his character. God is concerned for his righteousness. He wants to make sure that we know that he is a just and righteous God. When he justifies sinful people like you and I, right? H haven't you heard the objection, right? Oh, you mean to tell me that you can just, you know, live a totally wicked life and on your deathbed, you're just going to pray, oh, God, save me, and God's just going to save you. Have you heard something like that before? Yeah. Right? What kind of God is that? That's not just, right? And little do they know that the gospel is the explanation of that. Because in one sense, they're right in what they're perceiving. They're saying, hey, how is it that God can just, just justify people like that? Uh, they're wrong because they think that the justifying act of God is arbitrary. That it's just a, uh, that it's just a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a big word and it's probably making it too complicated. But it's, it's basically God's just that he does things uh, on a whim type of thing. He's a capricious God. That's the word I was looking for. It's not a, it's not a result of the capricious. Say it again. Capricious. capricious. My brain's not working that well today. I better get it together before the sermon comes. <laughs> but uh, he's not a capricious God. He doesn't do things arbitrarily or on a whim. God is perfectly just and he magnifies. What an opportunity, by the way, to preach the gospel to a person when they tell you that. To say, oh, no, 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 it's actually the opposite of what you're thinking. That, that God would justify you on your deathbed. 
who does not deserve to be justified, right? Um, and uh, uh, I've actually prayed with, I've prayed with a person on their deathbed, and I've held their hand, and um, I, I prayed in their ear because they were incapable of talking anymore, and I was you know, trying to communicate to this person and saying, if you hear me, if you hear my voice, listen to what I'm about to tell you. And I commenced to preaching the gospel to this lady. And um, I told her, if you can hear my voice, squeeze my hand. And she, indeed, she squeezed my hand. And I, and I started telling her, please, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you need to trust in Jesus now. And she was sque squeezing my hand the whole time. And so I was just sitting there hoping and praying, saying, God, please, Please save this person. I don't know if you're saving them. I don't know. But, um, but God, if he willed to save that woman moments before she entered eternity, would be perfectly just in doing it because of the fact that the atonement secures the justice of God. Uh, just look at the language that's used here in, in, in Romans 3, right? Um, we see both God's love as it's manifested, verse 24, again, by his grace, right? And the, watch this, and the demonstration, he, he, he uses this word, index, indexis, which means literally to prove something, to argue, to, get, to put forth a, a proof of something. And he is demonstrating his righteousness, which is also a very uh, loving thing to do, plus his patience, the word forbearance. You see that? That God did not just incinerate man at the moment of sin, right? I mean, think about that. There you are sinning against a holy God, and he should, right? Because if he was just just, he should have incinerated you right on the spot. He should have, your life should have been over. The judgment, I mean, you know, uh, judge and executioner, he should have took you out at that very moment. But because of his forbearance, it says he passed over the sins previously committed. What does that mean? What is that talking about? He passed over the sins previously committed. Does it, it almost doesn't sound natural to us, right? Like God is passing over sin. What does that mean? Forgetting your, your, your past sins. You're wiping, wiping away the debt that you've accrued for yourself. Yes, sir. What's that? The Old Testament I, I think you're onto something there, um, Mike. What's that? The Passover. Well, no, that's that's not what it's not speaking of atonement there, Tony. Yeah, yeah, I thought. Yes, sir. I would say based on the promise that he will fulfill. Right. Yeah, I think you guys all have bits and pieces of the truth there, right? And I think that what he is saying is that God did not decide, again, to execute his justice on all of the sins that had happened up until the present time. That, that God waited to demonstrate his righteousness, look at verse 26, at the present time. And so it's like all the sins of the old covenant, all the sins of his people, um, just pick up one of the prophets, right? I mean, it just begins with just detailing and by cataloging all the sins of his people. And you sit there and scratch your head and you wonder, why did God just wipe them out, right? When he was talking with Moses in that anthropological fashion, right? Talking with Moses, get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to go wipe them out. 
right? And Moses, as a mediator and as an intercessor, says, no, Lord, please, spare your people, right? And God gives us glimpses of mercy and grace. And up to the very present time when Christ came, God in his patience had decided to pass over those sins previously committed and to deal with the justice of that at the cross. At the cross, his justice was unleashed, his wrath unleashed on his own son for the, in place of sinners. So did he save Adam and Eve? What's, Christ? I mean, he could have destroyed Adam and Eve. That's right. He should have destroyed Adam and Eve. There's a sense in which he should have, right? If it was just based purely on justice. But it was mercy that saved Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's right. What does John MacArthur say? That's what he was saying. <laughs> that's what I thought. I had a clue when I saw that, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, I agree with John MacArthur. I'm in good company. Okay. All right. Uh, let's let's sum it up this way. Wayne Grudem says, therefore, both the love and justice of God were the ultimate cause of the atonement, and it is not helpful for us to ask which is more important. However. Because without the love of God, he would never have taken any steps to redeem us. Yet without the justice of God, this, the specific requirement that Christ should earn our salvation by dying uh, for our sins would not have been met. Both the love and the justice of God were equally important. Now, I love what Herman Bavink has to say here. You guys follow me? Follow me on this next quote because I think it's important to who God is Coming back to theology proper, which means theology speaking about the person and character of God himself. This is what Herman Bavink said. He said, For us, the will of God is often the final ground of things, and we have to acquiesce in it. Even though we do not know why God acts thus and not otherwise, but in God, that will always has those wise and holy reasons for his acting thus and not otherwise. For he never acts except in harmony with all of his attributes, his love, his wisdom, righteousness, and so on. And this agreement of the will of God with all his attributes is not coercive, not a restriction for that will, but precisely true, but precisely the true and highest freedom to will and to act as his holy, wise, almighty, and loving nature itself wants is for God both the highest freedom and the highest necessity. What Bavink is saying, in other words, is that by God acting in love and justice to atone for the sin of his people, he is not being constrained by anything. There is no will outside of God compelling God to do something. And so it is not as if God is bound to some principle outside of himself. Quite to the contrary, what Bavink is saying is that it is his own character, it is his own nature that demands that God acts in perfect harmony with his will. And in that sense, God is acting in perfect freedom. And so therefore, the atonement displays both the highest freedom of God and the highest necessity of God. That God would do this because it accords or it is in harmony with God's overall attributes. All of God's attributes. I mean, just think about the attributes of God. 
You know, I mean, this is like one of those things where you can contemplate this, but really to what end? Which attribute of God is more important than another? I mean, it's difficult to even say, right? I had a two-hour argument with a friend, <laughs> right? I was trying to stress the holiness of God, I think, is very important, <laughs> right? And the holiness of God is essential to who God is. And he was saying, no, it's the immutability of God. And it's like, okay, I see what you're saying, but you, without the holiness of God, you know, because you can think and you can begin to fathom, okay, if God is all-knowing, but he uses his knowledge in an unholy way, you know, then, then, then that would betray what the Bible teaches. God is all-powerful, uh, but if he uses his power in an unholy fashion, right? But then I hear what he's saying. Yeah, but if God is holy and then can change, well, what good is that? So I'm like, okay, let's hug. God is God, right? God is God. He's not going to do Praise the Lord. All of his attributes at once, and uh, we don't need to decide. We don't need to pick and choose. We just need the whole God. So this is a little bit about the cause, what caused the atonement. Ultimately, rooted in the decree of God. Ultimately, moved and motivated by his love and his justice. And then next, we talk about the need for the atonement. The need for the atonement. Okay, We've talked a little bit about this already, but a lot of times when we ask the word, why did God need to do X, Y, and Z? Right? We, we first have to come to terms with the fact that God needs nothing, right? So it's like Tozer said, I think that's what the rap song says, that need is a creaturely word, right? That's right. Who's that? Timothy Brinson. Yeah, he's a rap, a rap <laughs> theologian over here, right? Uh, how many of you guys listen to Christian rap, by the way? How many of you guys do not listen to Christian rap? Don't be shy. Don't look around either, K-Dub. <laughs> don't, don't, be, don't be judging people. All right? It's all good. You know, I got to tell you guys, I mean, Christian rap is a very great discipleship tool. Uh, I understand some people are adverse to the genre, and that's fine. But I have learned tremendously. I have actually learned quite a bit from Christian rap. I mean, some of these rappers are just, man, I mean, Timothy Brindle is, I mean, that guy's a really astute student of Scripture. I mean, that guy's going for a, I think he's going for his Ph.D. in uh, theology from Westminster. I know uh, Shailin is another uh, really good theologian. His preaching, by the way, if you have not heard Shailin's preaching, forget his rap, right? Well, don't forget his rap, but you know what I mean. Uh, aside from his rap, I've heard his sermons. That brother can preach, and uh, I'm glad that that's what he's doing now, right? Okay. You Calvin is a rapper? Calvin is a rapper? <laughs> no, no. We'll talk about Calvin today, but. <laughs> hey, Calvin wow. Well, Calvin probably, if Calvin did rap, he would have been one of the greatest rappers ever. <laughs> you know? So this gets to this question, you know, uh, the need of the atonement. Was the atonement necessary? Was it necessary? Could God have done it any other way? Wayne Grudem points out, very wise too in pointing, it, pointing this out, that, that just like God left the fallen angels unredeemed, 
he could have consigned all of us to hell in Adam and been perfectly just in doing that. Right? I mean, think about it. We don't complain that God did not redeem any angels that fell. You know, sometimes we use that argument, right? You know, God would have been just if he would have just damned us all, right? Well, we actually have an example of that. He did that with the angels. He, he chose not to redeem any of them. That's incredible. You ever thought about that? Um, and he's absolutely just in doing that. Any questions, comments, statements on that? I know that's kind of, yes, sir? It would just seem if you were in a debate scenario, um, somebody would say, well, he didn't redeem the angels because they're not in his image as we are. Kind of an attack against that. Right. Um, but I would say the emphasis should be on the freedom of God and yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose God could have found some way to redeem the angels. Yes, sir? Well, not all of creation is made in his image. That's what he, he says. say that he's reconciling all things to himself. That's right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He is going to, you know, Jesus does speak, what is it, um... Matthew 19, Jesus speaks about the regeneration of all things. You know what I mean? So we will eventually see the whole world experience some form of regeneration. You know, this gets into the whole continuity between the old, you know, the new heavens, new earth. Is it going to be totally new? You know, is it going to be some sort of continuity? You know, that's a different topic for a different time. But Jesus himself wrestled with this question, Matthew 26, verse 39. You remember that episode there at the Garden of Gethsemane. How amazing. And uh, boy, I tell you what, this really causes us to really just stand in awe at the existential battle going on within the Son of God, within his humanity, that he fell on his face in prayer as he contemplated the agony of the cross, as he contemplated the wrath of God, he fell on his knees in contemplation. He fell on his knees in agony, agonizing trouble. It says his spirit was vexed. And um, boy, I tell you what, he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, that's not the end of the prayer, yet, not as I will, but as you will. And I think what, he, what Jesus is just showing us there is that in his humanity, he had the full range of human emotion. He had that, he had that, 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 that same sort of trepidation that we would have facing something as brutal as the cross. But I think as Jesus contemplated the cross and contemplated redemption, of course, he never, he never wanted to do anything contrary to God's will. But he definitely expresses, um, uh, he definitely expresses the troubled spirit that he, the Bible says he had. Um, just amazing, right? But I think what this prayer ultimately shows us is that, no, if man is to be redeemed, there is no other way to do it. There is no other way. Jesus must go to the cross, and that's why he prayed according to that. Any other reasons why 
Uh, we would say the atonement is necessary. Any other reasons why you would say that? The atonement is necessary. I'll give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a clue. Biblically. Biblically. When you think of your Bibles, why is it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross? For, for fulfillment, that's right. And I'm thinking specifically of biblical prophecy, right? The word of the Lord cannot fail. So turn to Luke 24, right? Biblical prophecy ensures that the atonement would take place. Uh, there is no possibility of Jesus himself said, the scriptures cannot be broken. So there is no way that biblical prophecy is not going to be fulfilled, <laughs> right? It will be fulfilled. And this is, uh, this is what Jesus himself taught, Luke 24, 25, right? He says, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory, right? It was prophetically necessary for Jesus to suffer and then to enter into his glory. Any questions, comments, statements? Hannah, I see that hand. No? I was hoping that was a full hand. Anybody else? No, no, no. no. Okay, turn to the book of Hebrews then. If you guys are just going to stay quiet, I'm going to keep throwing stuff at you. Turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Obviously, we've looked at this. But the book of Hebrews, probably above all other books of the Bible, really just show the absolute necessity for Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Uh, beginning in uh, verse 17, Hebrews 2, 17. Hebrews 2, 17. He says, He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is a reference to the atonement, right? So what is he saying here? With respect to Jesus' humanity, he had to come in perfect solidarity with his people. He had to be perfectly identified with humanity in order to make propitiation for them. Right? You guys remember the word propitiation means to remove the wrath of God, to appease the justice of God, the wrath of God, the anger of God. And um, that's what Jesus had to do for us. Uh, it was not possible for man, therefore, to have his sins propitiated unless Jesus, A, became a man, became one of us, and then B, laid down his life for us. That's the only way to do it. Also, um, you can also see from Hebrews 10. So turn to Hebrews 10. Uh, we can also argue, I guess, that because of the impossibility that other forms of sacrifice cannot propitiate our sins, that the atonement of Christ is necessary. Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible, the author of Hebrews argues, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. There is no other way to take away sin, right? No other sacrifice is sufficient to do it. Questions?
statements. I'm hoping I catch somebody at a thought where they just want to say something and they ask them right at the right time. I see like Chris's wheels spinning and people's wheels spinning, so I just didn't know if you were brave enough to say something. Oh boy, that really throws a lot on you, right? It's an issue of your courage now, right? I'll step out there. Okay. Last week, we kind of touched base on this, and I was thinking, you know, the, the, the spotless lamb, if it was anything other, it wouldn't be sufficient. Yeah. If it was a bull, a dove, or something, you know, some other kind of form, Old yeah. Testament form of uh, sacrifice. And it would not, that, you know, that, referring to uh, Jesus being a full man. Mm. That's right. He had to be morally perfect, morally pure. He had to be spotless, blameless, right? In order to redeem man. He had to be a man in order to redeem man. And and also therefore we could we could argue for the need of the atonement based on our need for uh, cleansing and eternal cleansing. Look at uh, Hebrews 9. Jump over to Hebrews 9, beginning of verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things. But the heavenly things themselves, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. Um, so Jesus provides an eternal cleansing that reaches into the heavenly realm. His blood makes all things clean, not just here, but when he goes and offers his blood in heaven, he cleanses his people with an eternal redemption, satisfying all of God's demands. Um, maybe another one. Jump down to verse 25. Verse 25 says, um, speaks to what uh, Carlos was talking about the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, right? Um, it says here, verse 25, nor, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so again, the need for a once-for-all sacrifice, that also demanded the sacrifice and the atoning work of Christ. We need an atoning work that will be a once-for-all atonement, where we don't need any more atonements. Right? No more sacrifice needed. Uh, all of his sacrifice has been, or all of our sin has been atoned for in Christ. So um, I guess in conclusion, we have a few minutes here, I can just say that, that the need for the atonement is wrapped up in the character of God, that he is holy, that he is righteous. Um, his need to, to, to satisfy his justice and to punish sin. Um, Exodus 34, verse 7, you'll punish iniquity wherever it's found. He must, he will by no means clear the guilty. So God, by his very nature, demands satisfaction of his justice. The atonement is also necessary on the basis of God's legal demands and the moral nature of the law. So the law demands 
that atonement be made, a law that is immutable because it is rooted. In other words, this law, the demand and the debt of the law is not going away because it is rooted in God's own moral character and in God's own moral perfections. That is why the law is the law, right? Uh, It's not like God is saying, okay, there's a law out there somewhere. I think it's a good idea that I adopt it and then I'm going to prescribe it to mankind. No, no, no. The law flows out of the moral perfections of God, right? All law does, all real law, right? Um, I mean, the laws of logic flow from the logical mind of God. Because God is logical, we are capable of reason, right? So it's not as if God is adopting some standard of law out there, laws of logic, laws of morality, laws of ethics, whatever, laws of the uniformity of nature. He said, you know, I think these are good laws. I'm going to go ahead and prescribe this for mankind. Now, all, you know, transcendent law comes from God. It comes from his own character. Although man could not keep the demands of the law, the law must be kept in order to justify sinful man. So what is the atonement about? It is also about Jesus keeping the law in our place. Jesus undergoing the curse of the law in our stead. That's what, that's why it's also necessary. God's moral goodness demands the atonement. Why? Because God is incapable of denying himself. His justice, his demands will never change. They must be fulfilled. The demands of his own perfections have to be fulfilled through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on behalf of sinners. The law is also the occasion of man's indebtedness to the law of God. We are debtors. We have a huge debt to pay, right, before we're in Christ. We owe a great debt, and we can't afford it. We can't pay. There's nothing we have that can undo the debt, kind of like America. You know, United States, there's nothing it can do that will undo the debt. <laughs> uh, but we have, we have an infinitely greater debt than a whatever trillion. What are we up to now? A zillion? Huh? 18 trillion. You're keeping up? Wow. So we have a gazillion. Is that a word? You know, we, we have... <laughs> Yeah, we, 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 we have an infinite debt that we cannot pay, and therefore that demands uh, that Jesus pay it for us through his atoning sacrifice. And finally, the sacrifice that is given also highlights its necessity and its nature. Only God's one-of-a-kind son can perform a sufficient sacrifice for God's people. I mean, think about it. The sacrifice that is given highlights the need and the nature of the sacrifice. God had to give his one-of-a-kind son, right? Um, Just on the basis of that, we can say, if he had to give his one-of-a-kind son, then it must follow that there is no other way that he can do it. Because Jesus is not just an option on the table. Jesus is not just one of many possible ransom payments. He is the only payment. He is the only one that can bear the 
the curse of the law, bear the wrath of God, and triumph on the basis of his indestructible life and on the basis of his perfect obedience. And so the gift that is given also emphasizes the need for such a sacrifice. The need for such a sacrifice. Any questions, comments? Next week we'll talk about the nature and the extent of the atonement. Okay? So we're going to get more into what atonement actually is and what it's like and who it's for. What biblically, exegetically, what it teaches regarding that. Okay? Let's pray and uh, we'll go to worship. Father, uh, such a uh, such a holy and sacred ground, Lord, that we tread on when we talk about the atonement of Christ, the very heart and soul of our faith, of our religion, of our salvation. And Lord, we're grateful today for the blood of your Son that was shed on our behalf, on behalf of sinners just like us, Lord, everywhere, every tribe and tongue and nation that you might redeem a people for yourself in Christ. And Lord, we're so grateful that he came, that the Lamb of God came, and he came lowly, humble, and he came riding on a donkey, Lord, as a humble king, laying down his life for his people. And so, Father, we just pray that you would help us to have a right view of the death and of the atoning work of your son, Jesus. Help us in the weeks ahead to understand this even more with greater clarity, Father. Bless our church, our worship. We just pray that you would be pleased and honored. We come to you in weakness. Lord, we come to you needy. We come to you, many of us, sick, many ailments, pains. We come to you, Father, as a people that is broken. We have no money. Lord, we have, we have nothing to offer you. We have no gold. We have no silver for you. And yet we come and we partake. We come and we buy what you have to, 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 to sell because you give us all of the riches that we need, Father. So we're just grateful for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.